It has been said that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's human connection. Here, we connect anonymously. This is Addicts in the Dark with Quick Nick. A shout out to AITD listener Patrick Molden. I had the CBC on in the background last week, the public TV broadcaster up here in Canada. And there he was. A story about a former Canadian Forces IED bomb tech. He dismantled improvised explosive devices in Afghanistan. And he was sharing a story about how the war played a part in his struggles. You can learn more about Patty and his story on his Instagram page. Patty Molden is his handle. You can find him on our Addicts in the Dark Instagram page. Patty, of course, has never been a caller on this show. That's why I got the go-ahead to talk about him. Because every caller on this show remains anonymous. No different with this caller. It's caller 12 and their story about addiction. Hello. Shit, hit the wrong button. Sorry. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. So you know the deal. Yep. Yeah. Don't mention my name and the city that I'm in. Like, don't be. Don't be telling me your zip code. (laughs) Yep. All right. So tell me your story about addiction. Um, well, I'm still in active addiction, actually. Um, that's kind of why I was calling. Uh, I. Go back. I was uh, in recovery for almost eight years, and that was five years ago. And I went back out. Uh, I got a bunch of curveballs in life at that time, and I didn't handle them well. Instead of facing them and dealing with them, I got drunk. I went out and started to drink again. And I really I tried to drink myself to death that first summer, and I wouldn't die. I just keep get, get so sick, so sick. So I gave it up. I went to a detox, gave it up, and I made three months, and I was going out of my ever-loving mind. I wasn't really close to my recovery people. I was just, and I was hurt, and all this other stuff going on in my head, and I was going crazy. In the city that I live in, I don't, I never drank here, and I'd never ever bought drugs. I've been away from the drug scene for like 13 years, but I decided I was going to go out for some drugs, and I didn't know where to go in the city or whatever, and I went to a local shelter and hung out there. I dressed for the part and everything else, and hanging out down at the shelter and eventually somebody came and offered me something. Um, it offered me crystal and I'd never done it before. I, I was so knowledgeable about it. I used to do quite a bit of cocaine back in the day and all of that, but this was new to me. And he said, how much do you want? I didn't even know how much I said, well, what do you got? And he said, well, I've only got a point. I didn't even know what a point was at that point. I didn't have a clue. And, uh, so I get a point from this guy and that did the trick. Uh, that and opiates that I've been taking for pain control, between those two, it started to slow my head down some. Um, and shortly after that, to make it work better, at 53 years old, I decided to uh, go ahead and try it intravenously. I had no clue what I was doing there either, but YouTube and the local needle of change gave me everything I needed, knowledge and equipment. And that's what I went and tried that. So I do that occasionally. And then I really eventually ended up doing that daily um and i had a revelation lately that uh i've I've become that guy that 20 years ago and i'd be in a rehab and you could always be that one guy the older guy that's there and he can quote the book and he can 
you know, he knows everything about recovery and all of that. And yet he can't seem to stay clean. And I had this realization about two weeks ago that Jesus, I've turned into that guy. I remember telling myself, Oh, I'll never be like that. And here I am, you know, I'm all alone and I can't seem to stop doing what I'm doing. Most people wouldn't know that I'm using at all. I've gotten it down to a science now where I, you know, do regular injections and I just, I seem to be okay. But what it does is it helps keep me somewhat numb. And for some reason, the crystal has this paradox effect on me. I, I, I calm down. I, I feel calmer. My mind doesn't race like crazy, like normal. I can't think about five things at once. But it really, I get really under-motivated. <laughs> I don't do shit. I don't do anything done. Nothing gets done. So that's become a real problem for me. Um, my addictions go back, I guess, we'll go back a little ways, go back a long ways. Uh, I was probably qualified as an alcoholic when I was 19. I went away to college and I, you know, started drinking and within no time I was drinking every day. And yet, high functioning because I still graduated first in my class. You know, and went out and did things. And after that, I got, uh, it was second year of college, I discovered cocaine, of course. And that became a problem real quick within a couple of years. And I ended up my first treatment place at 24. And did 90 days there and quit doing cocaine and quit drinking for three months. And then, of course, I went back to drinking because I needed something to help me through the day. And I've always battled with depression up and down and things like that. And I went about 10 years. I got married. We had two children. And then about 10 years, I ended up in rehab again because I'd given up the cocaine. I stayed away from it. But the drinking was getting out of control. And I was popping opiates, a pain problem started up by then and I was popping you know opiates and all of that and I got arrested for writing my own prescriptions um and my wife at the time when I told her about that that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back there and she asked me not to come home from my second rehab so I come home from the second rehab and I'm all on my own again and uh but I've got to face this court date so I kind of cleaned up a bit but still kept drinking and they ended up, I'm in Canada, so what we call the crown here, the crown withdrew the charges. My lawyer got the crown to withdraw the charges. So I got off kind of scot-free. Um, and all this time, I always seem to have been this person that just, I don't know, depressive. You know, I have these depressive episodes. And if you ask anybody, they'd say I'm a hell of a nice guy and all of this, and they don't understand why I'm so self-destructive. And I've been this way since I think I was, since I was a kid. You know, I've always lived in fear. I don't know what it is. People say, well, what are you afraid of? I said, at any given time, everything. And then nothing at all. You know, I can hide it really well. I can really make it look like I'm not. But I can only keep that facade up for so long. You know, a couple of years here or there, and then catches up with me, and boom, I fall apart. Ten years after the second rehab, I ended up in another rehab. And uh, uh, that one finally, this brought us up to around 2008. And I was, I, I had reached a point of desperation finally. I'd moved out of the city that I was in. Um, I had quit a job. I was got this job in a call center. And after six months, I just couldn't do it anymore. Couldn't handle the stress and all the rest of it. And I quit. And I, I went on and I stumbled into the rooms of AA. And I was in and out of that for about six or seven months. And then just after Christmas of uh, 2008, I walked in the room and they were talk, you know, doing a talk, going around the table. I hadn't planned on saying anything. And when they asked uh, me to speak, I, I just, words came out of my mouth I hadn't planned on saying. And I said, I can't stop drinking. 
will you guys please help me stop? And I stopped drinking that day. I did another rehab uh, locally there. It just kind of helped me get, and it was 12-step based, so it kind of helped me get on track. And I got sober. I didn't think I could ever do that. I got sober. I wasn't taking any painkillers. I was all of that. Um, pain started to become an issue for me, but I dealt with it as best I could. I found some work. Um, you know, and I started dating a woman the long distance. She was in one city. I was in another an hour away. But we started dating and all of that. After a year, I uh, moved to the city where she was at, but kept my own place for another year. And then we moved in together and for a couple of years. And then I asked her to marry me, of all things. And that lasted a whole year and a half before it imploded and exploded all at the same time. Um, I was so convinced I'd met her in rehab and I didn't want to have a rehab romance, as they say. That's why I took it so slow and all of that and probably did the right things. But looking back, I shouldn't have gotten married uh, to this person at all. We only had recovery in common. And we both looked at that kind of different sides of the coin, too, uh, as you can do in recovery. So while I was in AA, I, I was doing pretty good from the outside. Look, people looked at me and thought, God, he's, you know, he's doing great. I got heavily involved in service. I was the alternate DCM here when I went back out. Um, that was tough, you know, quitting those positions, uh, calling sponsees and telling them, you know, your sponsors just had a drink and I can't sponsor you anymore. Was, that was really tough stuff to do. Um, and, yeah, that was hard. Really hard. And then when I quit all this, I had to quit the service stuff because minimum sober requirements. Um, and I'm now living at a buddy's house because my wife and I have split. And I realized that I had substituted service for working an actual program for the last, you know, three or four years that I was there. Just to clarify, when you say service, you mean work within AA? Service work, uh, you know, helping out at the group level and at the district level. I was up at the district level doing stuff at that, that, those committees, and I belonged to various committees or chaired various committees, so, you know, to keep AA running, more or less, the business side of AA. So I did a lot of that service work. And, but and you look at my calendar, I had something going every night of the week. And when I clear, I remember so clearly, when I cleared my calendar from all this stuff, and I looked at it and I went, what do I do now? Like, I had nothing else in my life. I'd made AA my life pretty well, and doing the service work was my life. And then I was just left with this void. So, you know, I'm starting to go to meetings every day again, like you're supposed to do. And it just wasn't clicking for me anymore. I was trying hard. Plus, my wife had been in the rooms as well. So, you know, that makes it so difficult. You know, people say, don't get involved and don't do these things. And yet, I thought I did it right. And yet, it was still so hard and difficult for me to do. Um, But I tried meetings and tried meetings. I lived at my buddy's place for three months. And after three months, I got my own place. And within a week of my own place, I started drinking. That was the summer I started trying to drink myself to death. And about three weeks after I got into my part, I stopped. I was starting to start. I started a new job that was really good, making decent pay. And I uh, I started missing days at work. And I thought, oh man, I can't blow this because I have a bad habit of that. I start doing drinking and drugging. You know, I start calling in sick for life. That's what I do. I isolate and don't go around anybody. Um, but three weeks after I had started drinking, my uh, stepmother passed away suddenly, unexpected. We didn't expect it at all. So I went. I ended up out of town for a week, you know, with my dad making arrangements and 
you know, helping put her to rest and all of those sorts of things. Connected with my old home group in this town where I sobered up at and, you know, spent a lot of time there. And I came home and I made it about a week and I started drinking again and I went really hard, really hard. And it didn't last long. My body couldn't take it. And that's when I said I I stopped drinking and um, made another three months. And in that three months, I had to claim personal bankruptcy. So I had had all these curveballs coming at me that one year. And the whole time while I was, this was going on, I was not, not feeling well. I was having a lot of pain in my body. I've had that before, but this was different. My feet were really doing weird things and you know, bones in my feet, my toes all started twisting to the side. And I was now missing work because of that. Um, towards the end of that year, that's when I started the drugs, like I'd already said. But I hadn't started seeing specialists and stuff. And I got diagnosed with uh, rheumatoid arthritis and uh, lung disease. And uh, within six months of that diagnosis, I was off work, uh, put on long-term disability, and I haven't worked since. I haven't had a real job since. I, you know, I get some money from the insurance company and a bit from our government, and it's not a heck of a lot. You know, it's a third of what I used to make. And so I managed to keep my car and stuff like that. And now I'm getting more heavily into this drug scene and stuff. And the guy that I was buying from the main guy uh, started hanging out at their place sometimes I'm doing maintenance work by trade and so hell somebody kicked the door in there one night and I go and rehang the door and fix the door and I'm doing this for dope and oh yeah I've become real friends the the handyman sort of you know the handyman junkie and it was just surreal and I started driving him around and forget, you know, to do stuff and things like that. And I, I became driver to the stars for the next couple of years. And I was driving people around to do deals and all this sort of thing. And, um, but at the same time, not always paying my bills and all those things that go with using. Um, I didn't, uh, yeah, driving these people around. And I was getting dangerous. I was either going to get my ass kicked by somebody that was, you know, just had a beef with me for doing this because I still had a vehicle or whatever, or I was going to get arrested and I was going to end up in jail, you know. And I was by this time 55 years old and I didn't want to go to jail. And my car, I let the payments lapse and it ended up they wanted to repossess it. I probably could have got the cash together and I just let it get repossessed because I knew I would be a dead man or in jail if I didn't do that. If I, so I gave that up and all these people that I used to drive around, well, they disappeared very quick um, as they do. And I, since then, I mostly, I'm a homebody. I stick mostly to home. Um, I get my girlfriend stuff delivered. I actually moved in the guy that I get the stuff from. He's, you know, he's sleeps in my living room on the couch and he's not here every night. Thank goodness. But, yeah, so now I've got it built right into the house, you know, so the stuff comes whenever I want it. And I'll go days at a time and I don't leave the house anymore. Um, I'm lucky in one way that I've got still, I've still got two guys from recovery, my old sponsor and my friend who's become like a brother that still talk to me regularly, still occasionally ask my opinion on things in their lives, what's going on. And we're still really tight and close and they don't judge me. A lot of people have written me off. A lot of people disappeared from my life. And, you know, that happens in recovery too, right? If you've only got recovery in common with them, after a bit, if you're not in recovery, well, they haven't got a whole lot to, to talk to you about or say, I don't agree with it always, but, you know, or people judge you. 
especially when you had the whole couple dynamic going on. So then people pick sides or whatever. Um, and I don't, I don't gossip. I don't believe in it. So I just, I stay out of that stuff. So I don't know what's being said or what, but you can tell when people have an attitude towards you or something. So I occasionally hit a meeting. I go out of town and uh, visit with my father, the town where I was before. I said my first home group, and I'll catch a meeting there now and again. But the city that I live in, I've been to a meeting in, uh, in well, a few years now. I've tried some Zoom meetings, of course, and that just, uh, just uh, I just don't jive with the whole Zoom meeting thing. I, I'm too easily distracted. You know, I can be watching the screen and then boom, move something shiny on the other side of the room and off I off I'll go. You know, so I'm not catching anything on these meetings. Uh, I've tried NA uh, quite a bit. Uh, I tried NA 20 years ago and did it for about a year. It wasn't my thing, and then I've tried again. And I just somehow just don't seem to connect in the rooms of NA as well. And AA, of course, you know, with the drugs on top of it, they aren't as keen on that. But a lot of people now know that, you know, they go hand in hand. But each place has their, their rules and their ways to follow things. So I have to respect that. Um, about the pandemic, that's had an effect as well with the isolation. You know, everybody was doing it. That We have a big lockdown here where I'm at. That's after the first, it was first announced March of what, 2020. And I actually felt more at ease when the lockdown came because everybody was doing what I'm doing. They just put life on hold. The life was on hold for everybody. And my life had been putting it on hold already. So it felt really comfortable. I went out more in the lockdown because there's nobody out. <laughs> I'd go out and I'd, you know, to go around everywhere and there's nobody around and it was quite peaceful. Uh, it was really kind of strange. But then what happens is people don't want it be doing nothing forever or for any length of time so people started you know wanting to get their lives back and doing stuff and i didn't i just kept doing the same old thing i just didn't didn't want to change didn't want to change i want to quit doing what i'm doing you know i'm playing rushing roulette every time i do this um my health's not my health is suffering and i'm putting off other health things because you know, I don't want to go in. I don't want to face the fact that, yeah, the veins in my arm are all a mess. And, you know, that I got to face that. And I tried talking to one of my specialists about it. And she put some notes down. Well, every doctor on that, in that group, which is all the hospitals in this city, could read the notes. So she wrote down something about addictions. And I noticed that the next, the other specialist, the respirologist, I started getting treated differently. And I asked him something about something, and he said, well, your doctor put in there that you have addiction problems. I said, don't. I said, I'm physically dependent on painkillers, you know. But that's made me really hesitant, you know, because it's like my quality of care everywhere else just drops. But then I'm going to die if I don't stop doing what I'm doing. So one of the things my sponsor, old sponsor and I joke about is that, you know, you're using and doing all these things, and taking action is like you're, you want to die or something. And I don't really want to die. I still take vitamins every day. <laughs> you know, I got to keep my health up. And yet, you know, I'm doing this, put a needle in my arm. So it, it, it doesn't make any sense I, to most people. To other addicts, it would make sense. You know, I have a busy mind. My friends have always made jokes about that. You know, how busy my mind is. You know, I'll, I'll be talking to somebody and another idea pops into my head and boom, I have to, I have to say something about it. You know, I have to get it out of my head and talk about it or something. And it just, yeah, I just always had a busy mind. Uh, never slept that well. Um, I don't know. I had a social worker three years ago suggest to me that, 
you know, the ADHD or ADD, whatever it is. Uh, she said, I'm no doctor, but you know, a lot of your symptoms kind of point to that sort of deal, but I haven't talked to a doctor about it. You know, I just haven't done anything about it, but yeah, when I, when I use meth, I, I generally, I'm calmer. My mind doesn't race as much as it has in the past. Um, well, treating ADHD, if you do in fact have it, can have a big impact on addiction because it helps with things like impulse control and dopamine deficiency. Yeah. And obviously the meth you're using is giving you similar side effects to what ADHD meds would give you. Yeah. Yeah. I feel better. It's like I'm self-medicating for sure. Um, definitely the way I'm doing it is not safe. Um, and yet I still keep doing it. That's the thing. I've become that guy that knows it all. People say, do you know what to do? And it's like, yeah, I knew what to do, but now I just, I don't seem to. Do I want to go through withdrawals? No, I don't. Um, uh, yeah, no, I don't, really don't want to go through that. But yeah, I realized I'd have to to get clean. And I, I don't know, the longer I let things go, too, the more isolated I get, the more distance I am from people. Um, it seems to me I, I, I avoid connections with people. Or I can have connections with people, but I can only maintain it for so many years or whatever like that. And then it dissolves on me because, you know, I don't maintain my side of the friendship or I've always done that all my life. When I was in grade school, I had friends at school and I had friends that were after school in my neighborhood. They all went to a Catholic school and I went to the public school. So they were my friends after school. And then when I left grade school, those friends were all kind of behind because I went to a high school farther off. So I had new friends there. And then when I left high school, boom, those people were all gone. I went to college and it was a new group of people and then worked. I changed jobs. It'd be a new group of people that I'd know and stuff like that. So I, I really didn't maintain friendships and stuff like that very well at all. I just seemed to go from one to the other and move on. Um, social media was kind of good at first because I connected with some childhood friends and stuff. And we now remain friends and we still chat regularly. Two guys that I was really close to when I was a kid. So that's been good. But other than that, you know, I've just been a loner. I've always been a bit of a loner. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but. And what about the relationships with your kids? My kids, that's been, that's been a tough one. When their mom and I split, um, I've, I, we split because of my addictions and getting that depressed thing. And then I ended up just diving back into addictions really heavy for eight years. It was eight years before I got sober. So I wasn't around them a lot. And then I lost my vehicle then too, obviously. And uh, they lived out in the country and I couldn't get out there all the time. And then I ended up living over top of a bar and wasn't conducive to having kids come to visit. Um, it's been a bit of a struggle. When I got sober, uh, my second year sober, my son came to the city I was in and went to a school there for one, two semesters. And that really helped us out a lot. As far as I was, so I was, you know, sober, I was clean. And uh, it helped us out a lot, establish a friendship, sort of, you know, from that point on. My daughter, uh, who moved across the world, four years younger she can get that opportunity with me and it's been a lot tougher for her and I to get a relationship and we were getting much better and then when I went back out she took that really hard it really hurt her it hurt her a lot just getting to talk to her is sometimes uh, you know difficult but we've rebuilt our relationship some it's gotten better lately the past four months we're, we're speaking more than we ever have and I'm honest with her you know I tell her what I'm doing and stuff like that but 
and she's 26 years old now, so she's living her own life as well. But yeah, yeah, I, I, I really blew it there. I dropped the ball with my kids, and that's probably the only regret that I have. You know how much I dropped that ball there with them. But we seem to we're working on it as best we can now. So right now in active addiction, you're injecting opioid-based drugs. Uh, no, I'm using uh, prescription painkillers, and I'm grinding them. And IV meth. And meth, yeah. yeah. Ironically, I don't drink anymore. Do you find mixing opioids and stimulants like you do to be common? I don't, not very common, no. Uh, I've heard of other people doing it, but not very often. And it's not the first time I've done that either. When I was using cocaine, I would always, you know, I'd have to have something else to bring me down. You know, I, I describe it as, I always looking for the, the perfect buzz. You know, you get that perfect buzz when you're young and you think you got it. It feels so good. And I'm always chasing that perfect buzz. You know, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And then, and I've always done that. And, you know, probably one without the other. If I, if I didn't, wasn't doing the meth, I'd probably just go back to taking the pain meds orally because they wouldn't have the same effect. I wouldn't, I wouldn't get that little bit of rush. And I hardly get that anymore because, I mean, you know, I try and control what I use somewhat, but I'm not, you know, I don't get obliterated. I just, I might sometimes get a little too high and then I just get sleepy. You know, I do too much and I'm tired or something. But most of the time, you would not be able to tell that I'm using. I just, I seem like an okay guy. You know, other than the fact that now I need to have my, well, what's left of my teeth removed and, you know, it's and Yeah. The dental issues, are they related to before you injected meth when you were smoking it? A uh, combination. They had started to go just before I started using it. And I'm told that was a side effect, too, of the rheumatoid arthritis. That uh, the dry mouth and stuff that I'd be chronically plagued with and all of that played a big role. And I was told to get them out four years ago. And uh, I didn't do it, of course. And uh, now I'm left with, I've just got a couple of fucking jagged edges left for teeth. And the rest are all broke off now below the gum line. And I was born also with a cleft palate. And they told me that because of the cleft palate has to be redone now. Uh, I'll get the teeth out. And then two months later, I'll have to go back in and they redo the cleft palate where they re split the roof of my mouth and re sew it all back together to make enough of a gum line for a denture to hold on to because I don't have that gum line because the way the roof of my mouth is shaped from the surgery when I was a year old. So to put that back together. So I've got two of those surgeries and I keep putting those off. Not to mention financially, I, you know, I'm just, I'm destroyed that way too. So you mentioned earlier that ever since you were a kid, you've always lived in fear. Yeah. But this far into active addiction is using for you more about dependence or do you still get that fear? Uh, yeah, I do, but not on the level that I once did. Um, it's more of just a generalized thing. I like, I can force myself. I, I have to put myself in situations that I'm terrified of. And I've done that with work. Like I hate, hated being on the telephone and yet I went and got a job in a call center. Um, I, stuff like that. I used to go and at one time in my life, in my late twenties, I went up and did uh, open mic nights for comedy at some comedy clubs. That's the most terrifying thing in the world I've ever done. I don't know, man, I had to have a, quite a few stiff drinks before I did it, but I would go up and do this to put myself in deliberate fear, you know, things I'm terrified of and do it. And then your everyday things like going to work 
I would get so worked, you know, about that, something about that that I'd stop going into work or something, whatever job I had, because I was fearful of this, that, and the other. Um, it, it, it doesn't make any sense to me Nick, at times. It just doesn't. Um, yeah, I don't know. So I guess the reason why I wanted to tell my story here today is, you know, to hopefully give myself a bit of motivation by saying this all out loud to somebody, you know, what's been going on and especially the last five years, what I've been doing in the hopes that it'll give me some sort of motivation to say, okay, this, this is it, you know, just go and lay on the line for somebody. And, you know, that's my thoughts. Since your kids are now adults, have you ever thought about reaching out to them for help? Oh, wow. No, no, I don't think I have. Um, I've always felt like, you know, that's my responsibility and not to put that burden on them. And, you know, try my son and I, we don't talk about that part of it, my side of addiction at all. We talk about addiction in general, um, his skirting with it somewhat, and how he's, you know, taking care of himself and seems to be flying on a good path. My daughter, we tend to, we talk about it, but how it's affected her. Um, like a, it's been a struggle for her and I to try and get to know each other better. And, uh, but I've never thought of asking them to help me through it. I've always tried to just keep it to myself. That's, that's really quite a question. Eh? Hmm. I have to think about that and then, yeah, maybe sit them right now. Can't sit them down together, but who knows in the near future. And throughout your journey so far. Have you or anyone else identified any possible traumas associated with that fear that you talked about earlier? I, I, I yeah, of course I have. Um, I had a doctor back in 1988. Uh, that's when repressed memories were really big. The doctors were all talking about that. Suggested I, I had harm, done some self harm and uh, cut my arms up pretty good. And uh, this doctor suggested that I, you know, repress memories. I was putting something that I couldn't remember, and that was causing me to do these sorts of things. Um, and so then I spent the next two or three years looking at family members, wondering who abused me, and I could never come to any ideas that anybody did. Um, and that's not saying that something didn't happen to me in that time. But I've recently thought about, I was, like I said, I was born with a cleft palate. And my family would tell a story about the first year of life they had to feed me with an eyedropper and a little teaspoon and that I just cried most of the freaking time. And, uh, you know, if that would be some sort of trauma that would just stick with a person, like who knows what happened in that year, you know, as far as how my parents took it. I know my mom, it was really hard on her, right. To have a kid like that. And, uh, they got surgery when I was a year old and then I was able to, uh, you know, be okay, eat and do everything normally. Eventually, so I was fine after that, and I didn't have the any of the heavy side effects people have from that, like the hair left and those sorts of things. Or I've had some hearing troubles and some speech troubles, but other than that, I've been pretty good. But I don't know, could that be a trauma? Maybe. You mentioned earlier that you had some luck when you just started showing up to meetings. Yeah. Have you ever thought about giving that another try? I don't, I don't, well, I go to more meetings just to give me something to do. I'd have to have, I have to go to meetings and we're having physical meetings again now. So I could go, that would get me out of the house and it would give me something 
to do. That's how I got sober the first time. I went to a meeting every day because I needed to do something other than think about drinking or using drugs. So, yeah, I would go back to meetings, but I don't know that I'd be as involved as I once was. Um, I'd have to go back to meetings, but I think I want to like to look at some other therapies. Plus, I still have to face the chronic pain issue, find another way to deal with that. And, uh, you know, who knows what bag of tricks might lie when I quit doing that. And, uh, like I say, I don't, I don't want to die next. I really don't. That's not my thing. I still seem to have a bit of hope in me, but I know it's waning. And, you know, I'm, I'm now 57 years old. Like, geez, man, it's going to get clean. You better think about doing it soon. There aren't a lot of old addicts out there. Not active ones anyways. So, and people have been dropping like flies around here. Thank God I didn't get into the, the fentanyl at all. It's everywhere, but I just won't do this stuff. So, Well, I hope that telling your story today helps you in some cathartic way. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you did it. Yeah, me too. You know, and, and hopefully somebody else will, may have a similar story out there. Maybe they'll uh, get something from one as well. I hope so. I'm glad that I did it. I wasn't so sure this morning when I woke up. I went, oh, yeah, I got to do that podcast. And I started getting a little nervous, talked to one of my guys, and yeah, I'm glad I did it. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing from you again, man. And I hope you can continue to fight for your recovery. Yeah, yeah thank you. And I've enjoyed the podcast so, so far. I've listened to most of the episodes, so it's been really good. When life doesn't go the way we wanted it to or expected it to, it's easy to feel guilty about the decisions we made and why we made them. But our recovery and the story that got us there isn't really a story until it's shared with others. And most of our stories resonate with others. And that's how we collectively overcome that shame and guilt. I'm Quick Nick. Thanks for listening. If you want to anonymously tell your story about addiction, find Addicts in the Dark on Instagram.